Well, I want to start with a question, and here's the question. What do you think of when you hear the word Christmas? When you hear the word Christmas, maybe the first image that pops into your mind is of a decorated tree. How many of you that was that popped in there into your mind or of presents or maybe of a meal with your family? Or maybe you start thinking about all the shopping you still need to get finished. I, I dared ask this question. How many of you still have shopping to do? Good. I, I want to be not raising my hand alone. All right. So maybe you hear that word. And you start thinking of all the shopping that you need to do. Maybe when, when you hear that word Christmas, feelings of joy or, or feelings of anticipation or maybe Feelings of stress because you still have shopping to do start to run through your mind. Or maybe when you hear that word, all it makes you think of is a big, bloated, commercialized holiday. You know, a time when the materialism of our American culture goes into overdrive. Or, or maybe, just maybe, when you hear that word Christmas, you think of some shepherds, a manger, a young mother, a father, and a baby. A baby who is much more than just a baby. I used to hear this all the time. I don't hear as much anymore. But how many of you remember people saying, he's the reason for the season? How many of you remember people saying that? Jesus is the reason for the season. People used to wear buttons. Remember that? That said, Jesus is the reason for the season. Nowadays, maybe people put it up on their their Facebook page. I don't know. Um, But those people really sought to remind the world that this, this holiday is about Jesus. They sought to put the Christ back into Christmas. And although that is a noble cause... I have to wonder how many who proclaimed that message and how many of us are content to just keep him there. And what I mean by that is do we end up confining the Christ of Christmas just to Christmas? Do we end up confining the Christ of Christmas just to Christmas? Do we really drink in, drink in deeply the significance of what happened when that baby was born in Bethlehem? Or, or, or do we just, are we content to just confine that to a day in December? Are we content to confine the the wonder and the glory of the incarnation simply to a a quote-unquote season in the dark winter months? Are we content content to confine it just just to a manger scene? You know the little manger scene that we set up during the Christmas time? And then what do we do with that the rest of the year? It gets packed away, right, with all the Christmas decorations for, for 11 months. Is the Christ of Christmas just for Christmas? Is the Christ of Christmas just for Christmas? What is the significance of that little baby in a manger? And how much are you allowing the significance, that significance, to affect every day, every moment of your life? That's what I want to talk about this morning. What is the significance of that little baby in a manger? And how much are you allowing that significance to affect every day, every moment of your life? Are you just confining Christ to Christmas? Or is the reality of what happened with that baby in a manger, is that transforming the way you live day in and day out? Well, two weeks ago, I began a series to help us unpack the significance of this event, and I've, I've titled this series, Understanding the Advent. And my purpose in this series is to look at the advent of Christ, to look at the incarnation, the coming of Christ to be born of Mary, to look at that through the lens of the Bible's big story. I want us to look at that event through the lens of the entire Bible. And again, when I talked about that that was my plan a couple of weeks ago, some of you went into full-on panic because you know how long it takes me just to get through a couple of verses of text. And you thought, Ryan, you're going to try to do the whole Bible in two messages? But we got that first part done. Um, but that's my plan in, in this series. And my desire is that you would come to understand that that baby in a manger is the center 
of the entire Bible, the center of the whole Bible, and his arrival changes everything. His arrival changes everything. His arrival is bigger than a celebration one day a year. Amen? His arrival is bigger than a celebration one day a year. His arrival is bigger than a holiday, quote-unquote, season. His arrival is a moment that turns history. That turns history. And that's why the angels rejoiced that night, as we read this morning. That's why the angels rejoiced that night, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, what did they say? Peace. Peace to men. They understood the significance of that moment. And my prayer is that we would as well. Now, two weeks ago, when I began this series, I launched us into it by looking at two verses in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And I'd like to go back to those verses this morning. So if you have your Bibles... Take them and turn over to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians. And if you don't have your Bible, if you don't have a paper copy or don't have it on your phone, we've got some in the back there, so just raise your hand up. We want you to be able to follow along as we look at God's Word this morning. So slip up your hand if you need a Bible, and we'll get one of those to you. So Galatians chapter 4. Look at what Paul writes, starting in verse 4 of chapter 4. He writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Here Paul is describing the advent. He speaks about God sending forth his Son, born of woman. But notice here, Paul doesn't describe the advent as a detached event with little significance. No, he shows us that that event is the key. It's it's the fulcrum on which the entire story of the Bible moves. And as I explained two weeks ago, Paul here, he gives us a great summary of the Bible's big story. The Bible's big story, he gives us a great summary of that. The Bible's big story is a story of redemption. And all of the other stories in the Bible are working together to tell that one big story. That's what we got to enjoy last week through our Christmas concert, seeing that unfold before us through song. That The Bible's big story is the story of redemption, and all the other stories are telling this one big story. They are all working together to tell the one big story of how God redeemed a people for for himself. They tell the story of how God redeemed a people who were in bondage, a people who were without hope, a people who were in slavery to sin and its consequences. And all the stories of the Bible work together to tell this one big story of God redeeming that people and how he made them his own precious children. And that's what Paul's describing in these verses. Again, look at them. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to do what? To do what? To redeem. You should rejoice in that little word right there. Amen? Amen. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul is showing us the Bible's big story and the significance of the advent in that story. Now, the first thing that we see here is that the Bible's big story had a time of preparation. Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, and that phrase tells us that what came before that moment when God sent forth his son was a time of preparation. It was a time of filling things up to get them to the fullness. It was a time of getting things ready. You see, as in every good story, in this true story of redemption, it it built to its climactic moment. It built to its climactic moment. The story wasn't just told in one act. It wasn't just told in the first act. There was a season of development. There were chapters that laid the groundwork. There were moments that got us ready for the moment. There were moments that got us ready for the moment. 
And those moments are laid out for us in the Old Testament. And again, that's what we looked at two weeks ago. But, but let me just remind you for a moment of what we saw in that previous message. In that previous message, as I mentioned, we looked at the advent through the lens of the Old Testament. And what we saw is that the Old Testament shows us our need for redemption. It shows us our need for redemption. It shows us why the redemption in this redemption story is so desperately needed. And it does that through preparation and through promises. Through preparation and through promises. It, sh- it prepares us for the coming redemption by showing us three things. First, it shows us from where we fell. Second, it shows us how we fell. And third, it shows us how far we fell. It shows us from where we fell. It shows us how we fell and how far we fell. The Old Testament begins by showing us from where we fell. The story opens with a good, wise, and powerful God who makes everything. And how does he make it? Isn't it amazing? With just words, right? He speaks and it comes into being. And that's how the story opens. And in this God's goodness and his care, he lovingly makes a man and a woman and he places them in a garden paradise. And he places them to dwell there in perfect harmony. Harmony with the world around them, harmony with one another, and harmony with the God who made them. They are allowed to enjoy unbridled fellowship with the good, wise, and loving God of the entire universe. They enjoy life as it should be. The world is at peace. That's where the story starts. But then, what happens? They fell from that place. They fell from that place. And they fell by turning against that good, wise, and loving God. That's how we fell. That's how we fell. The man and the woman questioned God's goodness. They turned from his wisdom, and they spurned his love. They, the crown jewels of God's good creation, train wrecked that creation. And they train train wrecked it by choosing, and we talked about this two weeks ago, they train wrecked it by choosing to honor themselves and worship their own limited understanding instead of honoring the one who made them and trusting in his infinite wisdom and understanding. They sinned. They sinned by turning away from the one who is right and good. And with their sin came disharmony, came separation, came frustration, came suffering, and came death. With their sin, all humanity fell. And the Old Testament tells us this story. It it tells us why things are the way they are. You ever ask that question? Why is it like this? Well, God tells us, right, doesn't he? He tells us why things are the way that they are. The Old Testament tells us why things are the way that they are. Tells us why things are the way that they are. Tells us how we fell. But also in page after page of the Old Testament, it shows us how far we fell. It shows us how far we fell. In Genesis chapter 3, you have the fall. And then what happens right away in Genesis chapter 4? Murder. You have a brother, firstborn of Adam and Eve, jealous over his other brother. And God says, whoa, whoa. But he doesn't heed God's warning. And he murders his brother. One chapter. And then by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, you read this. This is Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And then listen to this. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Three chapters after the fall. Three chapters after the fall. And that's how far humanity had come. We had become a regret in the mind of God. With every intention of the thoughts of our hearts, only evil continually. 
And, and even after the flood, even after God wipes the earth clean and reseeds it with the family of a godly man named Noah, even after that, the ugliness of sin continues, right? The ugliness of sin continues. God calls a descendant of Noah, a man named Abram, and he promises to do great and wonderful things for and through Abram. He makes a covenant with him, and he changes Abram's name to what? Abraham. And he blesses Abraham and his barren wife with a son, a son named Isaac. Isaac is the son of the promise given to Abraham and Sarah, even though they were way past childbearing years. And although as we read through the story of Abraham, we do see him have some great moments. Is Abraham free from the effects of sin? (laughs) Not at all. Those of you who have been going through a Genesis study, we've been talking about that, right? Abraham struggles. He struggles with cowardice. He struggles with lying. He struggles with faithlessness. And his offspring are even worse. They're even worse. The Old Testament tells us the unfolding story of the children of Abraham. And in that story, we see that in spite of all of God's love and all of God's grace towards them, they return to their sinful ways time and time and time and time. And I could keep going time again. They keep coming back to their sinful ways. And this morning, I don't want to detail all of their failure, but what I want to mention is that in their story of failure, guess what we discover? Yeah, we shouldn't look at them and say, oh, those knuckle-headed children of Israel. I can't believe they would do that. We should look at them and say what? There I am, yep. I see my own heart. You see, in their story, we discover our own. The Old Testament prepares us for the coming of redemption by showing us our own desperate need of it. In the stories of Abraham's children, in the stories of Abraham's race, we find people with hearts just like ours. Just like ours. Hearts that are selfish, hearts that are faithless, hearts that are often afraid of the wrong things. We find people just like us, people who are unable to save themselves no matter how many good rules and good laws you give them. All the rules do is what? Expose our rule-breaking hearts. Amen? All the good laws of God do is expose the sin that's there in our own hearts. You see, the Old Testament shows us a world in desperate need of redemption. A world that, although the culture of the Old Testament may seem foreign to us, uh, the picture that it paints is all too familiar. Amen? It's all too familiar. But the Old Testament doesn't just show us how bad things are. It also shows us how good God is. Amen? shows us how good God is. And one of the ways it does that is by giving us promises, promises that say God is going to come and change things. Amen? Promises that God is going to come and change things. And we talked about those promises in that message two weeks ago. And and what I wanted you to see in that message two weeks ago is that there is this thread, this thread of promise, right, running through the entire Old Testament. And that focus, uh, the focus of that, that thread of promise running through the entire Old Testament is that God himself, is going to fix things. It's not, hey, you guys need to get your act together, and when you do, then maybe I'll, I'll be kind to you. The focus of that thread all the way through, that thread of promises, God's going to come, and God's going to be the one who fixed things. He will deliver us. He will be our redeemer. And if you trace that thread all the way through the pages of the Old Testament, you find that that thread of promise leads you where? It leads you to that baby in a manger In Bethlehem. That's where it leads you. Again, look what Paul says here in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, what did God do? What did God do? Have I lost you already this morning? I hope not. And God sent forth his son, born of woman. When all of the preparations were done, in the fullness of time, when the story had made clear to us our need for redemption, when all of the work of the Old Testament was complete, 
then our Redeemer arrived. And, and that's what I want to unpack in the rest of our time together this morning. I want you to see how his coming, how, how the advent is the dawn of our redemption that radiates through the entire New Testament. How his coming, how the advent is the dawn of our redemption that radiates through the entire New Testament. I want you to see how this event, this moment when God sent forth his son drives the, the second half, as it were, of our Bibles. I want you to see how this moment changes everything and how that change unfolds in the pages of the New Testament. Now, the first thing that the New Testament shows us in relation to this moment is that this moment was the beginning of our redemption being accomplished. It was the beginning of our redemption being accomplished. If, if the major themes of the Old Testament are redemption prepared and redemption promised, which they are, if those are major themes of the Old Testament, a major theme of the New Testament is redemption accomplished. Redemption accomplished. You see, after all of the buildup there in the Old Testament, the description of the fall and the sinfulness of man, after all the foreshadowing of our deliverance that you see through the exodus, through the sacrifices, through the conquest of Canaan, after all the stories of kings and prophets, when we step into the New Testament, we're now told of the coming of the true king, the true prophet, the one who will bring true deliverance. We read of an angel named Gabriel who visits a young virgin named Mary. And he gives her the announcement of announcements. The gospel writer Luke, he records this event to us. This is Luke chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. Listen to what he says. The angel said to her, do not be afraid. Why do you hear angels saying that all the time? Because that's our natural reaction. If, if you were to see an angel, if I was to see an angel, you hear people say, well, I saw an angel. I had such peace. <laughs> what happens when people see angels in the Bible? They go into full-on panic, right? Because angels are glorious beings. And so this angel comes to her, and the first thing he needs to say is, Do not be afraid, Mary. Calm down. And here's why. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. In the Old Testament, God had promised to send a king to deliver his people, a king like David, but, but far greater. He had promised a king with an eternal throne and an everlasting kingdom. And now this young virgin named Mary is being told that her son will be that king. Again, Sarah kind of mentioned it this morning. We hear these stories a lot, right? And so the, they just kind of become familiar and we become a little, I don't know, desensitized to them. There was really a young woman named Mary who had an angel visitor, and the angel said, this is who your son's going to be. Can you imagine that moment that really happened? Isn't that staggering to think about? How do we respond to that? Uh, have you seen my calendar? Oh, you know how much stuff I got to do this month? You know? Do you know what this is going to do to my life? I have my plans, my purposes. Well, she responds magnificently, doesn't she? But this young this young virgin is told that her son will be that long-promised king. And this Mary is betrothed to a man named Joseph. Love Joseph. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of integrity. And he, too, receives an angelic message. Matthew, in his gospel, records that message for us. Matthew tells us that when Joseph found out that Mary was with a child, and he knew the child wasn't his own, he was a man of integrity, he, he considered breaking off that betrothal quietly putting her away quietly. But then the angel came to him in a dream and he told him this, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Listen to this. This is Matthew 1, 20 
and 21. Do not fear to take Mary to be your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Yeshua is really what it is in the Hebrew. You know what that means? Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. You shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Joseph is told this shocking and glorious news. The child that Mary is carrying is the promised deliverer, and he is the one this entire story has been building to. He is the one who will save his people from their sins. And Joseph is told that this one will be unlike anyone that has come before him. This one will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. He will be born of woman, but born without the involvement of an earthly father. And in this, we're starting to see some of the glory of the one who is in the manger in Bethlehem. Again, look at our text. In Galatians 4, 4, Paul tells us that this one is none other than who? The Son of God. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth who? An, an angel? Some lesser being? God sent forth his son. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. The author of Hebrews, he describes God sending forth his son. This is Hebrews chapter 1. Listen to this. This is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The author of Hebrews writes, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. The Old Testament. Speaking to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. Remember what it says there? By his son, by his son, the ultimate prophet, right? The last word, really, from God. He had spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, this son, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He, this son, upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's who was born of Mary. That's who was born and laid in a manger, the creator of the universe, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's who stepped into this story of redemption when the fullness of time had come. God of very God, as the ancient creeds put it. The son of God who possesses the fullness of God. And that one took upon himself, think about this, God, a very God, eternal God, took upon himself the nature of a creature. A human being created by God. He who is eternal became flesh. He who is the creator of everything took upon himself our nature. That's who was in the manger. John, in the opening of his gospel, he describes it this way. He calls the Son the Word of God, and he writes this. This is John 1, 1 to 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. How much was made without him? Yeah, and John's pretty emphatic about that, right? Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of or for men. Then John writes this. This is verse 14 of that same chapter. And the word became flesh. In Incarnate, in flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God the Son took upon Himself our humanity. The book of Philippians describes it this way. 
The Apostle Paul writes, this is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. He says, Have this mind among yourself which is yours in Christ Jesus. Think like Christ. Think of yourself as Christ did. And here's the picture. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't cling to it like we want to do, right? What do we want to say? But I have my rights. You can't treat me that way. You can't expect me to do that because I have my rights. And we want to cling to it. But he didn't consider equality with God that which he possessed. Something to be grasped. He didn't cling on to that. But he made himself nothing. What does that mean? He made himself nothing. Well, Paul tells us. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. He set aside the glory of heaven. He set aside the praise and worship of angels to step into our fallen world, to take upon himself our limited nature, and to become just like one of us. Think about that. To become just like one of us. He, he was infinite, now new limits. He who is all-powerful, right? Is anything impossible for God? Nothing is impossible for God. He is all-powerful. He was all-powerful. Now experience being tired and weary. He got hungry. Think about this. There is the creator of the universe, a helpless infant. I mean, if we were coming up with a plan, right? We would probably say, okay, let's make him come to Earth, right, off of some spaceship, right? Full-blown, full-aged adult, you know, and step right into the palace and everybody can see what a great and glorious king he is, right? That's the way Hollywood would make it, right? I heard they want to make us another Life of Christ story, but they want to remove all the miraculous, so maybe, maybe they'll do the spaceship, I don't know. Um, <coughs> but that's the way we would But here, the creator of the universe enters as a helpless infant. Those of you who have had babies, you know. How much can they do for themselves? And he enters in as a helpless infant. Sleepy, needy, hungry, all the time. In the manger, we find this unfathomable reality. The one who is both truly, fully God, and at the same time, merely human. Merely human. And as we marvel and we wonder and we worship at such a reality, we also need to understand that that's what it took to redeem us. That's what it took. That's what it took to redeem us. We needed God himself to come down in our humanity in order to save us. Because the story up to this point, the story of the Bible, has shown us so clearly that we have no hope of saving ourselves. Amen? We can't do it. No human being from the time of Adam all the way to the fullness of time had been able, had been worthy, had been capable of saving himself or herself, let alone the rest of us. Amen? Nobody. Again, the heroes of the Bible, Abraham and Moses and Joseph and all those guys. What do we see in them? Failure and failure and failure. And it's a reminder to us that who is the hero of the Bible? Yeah, God himself is the hero of the Bible. God himself. No human being had been able. But now, when in the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Again, look at the text, look at verse 5. To do what? To redeem those who were under the law. To redeem us. He came to save us. But how? How would this one who was the son of God and the son of man, how would he redeem us? 
Well, first, he needed to live the life that we failed to live. He needed to live the life we failed to live. So the baby didn't stay in the manger, amen? He grew. He grew into a man. Luke 2.52 tells us that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew and he was tested. He was tested like Adam was tested. He was tested like the children of Israel. Abraham's offspring had been tested. He was tested like you and I are tested. But where everyone else had failed, where Adam had failed and Israel had failed and you and I have failed, Jesus proved what? Faithful. Faithful. The author of Hebrews writes, this is Hebrews 4, 14 and 15. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. You ever been in one of those moments where you want to say to God, God, why are you doing this to me? You don't understand how hard this is for me. You don't know how I feel. Anybody ever had that moment? Okay. But Bible, the Bible tells us, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our, with our weaknesses, but we have one who, listen to this, in every respect, in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet, what's the next part? Do you remember what it says? Without sin. Yet without sin sin. With every test, in every trial, in the face of every every temptation, Jesus proved faithful. And we want to downplay that, right? But we can't. It says in every respect, just like we are, just like you feel that in that moment, he walked through that in every single time, not just those three out in the wilderness. Those are some of the ones that the Bible gives us. But every time, he proved what? faithful. He proved faithful. He proved faithful time and time and time again. He proved to be the obedient son and the faithful servant. He lived the obedient, God-honoring life, brothers and sisters, that we fail to live. Can I get an amen on that one? We fail, don't we? But he lived the life we failed to live, and he lived that life, and I appreciate David, you praying this this morning. He lived that life for us. He lived that life for us. Paul says in Romans 5.19, Romans 5.19, listen to this. For as by one man's disobedience, that's speaking of Adam's sin, the many were made sinners. So also by the one man's obedience, that speaks of Christ's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Listen to that again. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, the obedience of Christ, the many will be made righteous. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, the Apostle Paul says that for those who are in Christ, Christ has become for them the wisdom of God. And then he also says Christ has become for them righteousness and sanctification and redemption. How can you stand before God and say, well, God, enter, let me enter into your presence. Hear my prayers when you know your own heart. How? Because you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because you can say, well, there's my righteousness. It's in him. He lived that righteous life for me. He has become for us the righteousness of God. He lived the obedient life so that all who are in him could be clothed in the righteousness of God to stand faultless before God. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Without the incarnation, without the advent, without him being born of woman, that would have never happened. That would have never happened. We would have no hope of righteousness before God if God the Son didn't become flesh and live righteously in our place. 
Do you celebrate that when you think about the baby in the manger? If that hadn't happened, if it had just been, you know, God coming down from a spaceship or whatever of the craziness, there would be no hope. There would be no hope. He had to become one of us in order to live righteously for us. And again, did he step into ease and luxury? No. I mean, I don't have time to go into this in great detail, but we've talked about it enough as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, what it was like in that particular time and era. I mean, Jesus was born into, into poverty, the likes of which you and I will never know. When we, when we went down to Nicaragua, we saw a little glimpse of it. But that's what he was born into. That's the life that he lived. And he wasn't born in a land of freedom. He was born in a land of oppression. And he lived in that day in and day out with all of the temptations and all of the testing and all of the trials. And he lived faithless, faithfully for you and for me. For you and for me. We would have no hope of righteousness before God if God the Son didn't become flesh and live righteously in our place. But not only did he secure righteousness for us through the life that he lived, he also obtained forgiveness for us by the death that he died. He died the death we deserved to die. Romans 6, 23, you know this. It says, the wages of sin is what? Death. That's what Adam and Eve were warned of in the garden. And that's what they earned for us by their rebellion. And every one of us, by our own rebellion, has been adding to those wages. Amen? We've been adding to those wages. We've been adding to the debt of punishment we owe for our rebellion against God. But the glorious news of the gospel is that somebody paid that debt for us. Amen? Christ paid that debt for us. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3.18 writes, Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. Who's the unrighteous? You want to raise your hand if you're in that? Yeah. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He might bring us to God. The price of our sin was paid by Christ so that we could be reconciled to God. The division that sin had created was removed. As Christ died in our place. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I love this verse. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him Christ. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made him to be sin. Christ, you are sin. You're the sin bearer. So that in him we may become the righteousness of God. All of our sin was placed upon Christ. And, And God saw in him... Your sin, my sin. He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's why Paul writes in Romans 5, 8 to 10, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ did what? Christ died for us. He didn't say, you know, if you be a good boy and you do this and 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 a few more things, then I'll come and I'll die for you. But you've, you've really got to earn it. What does it say? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul continues, Since therefore we have been justified, declared righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That's why Paul writes a few chapters later in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is what? Now, no 
condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The price of our sin has been paid in full. Christ has obtained for us eternal forgiveness from God. We read that sometimes, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we want to say, well, that, that's kind of, you know, all the stuff I've done up to this point. Now, you know, now that I'm saved, I'm going to be a perfect person. <laughs> but what is that declaring to us? There is now no condemnation. Ever. Ever. I, uh, Pastor Frank used to say when he first came to that Romans 8, 1 in his Bible, he, he underlined it all the way to the book of Revelation. I mean, that's how hard he pressed on the page. Because it was such a, one, it's such a glorious truth to celebrate, right? There is therefore now no condemnation. So when, when you hit those moments and you want to beat yourself up, right? And we do. Amen? We hit those moments and we're like, oh, I call myself a Christian and I just did whatever. Eternal forgiveness. Because Jesus Christ paid the debt. Eternal forgiveness. You know what that means? That doesn't mean when you get to heaven, you're going to be... You're going to be in the shack out on the back 40, you know, because you weren't as great a Christian as this guy or that guy. You know, sometimes we think that way, right? That's not what it means. It means eternal forgiveness. That means God sees you how? With, with all of the sin, well, this and that. No, he sees you completely forgiven. He sees you the righteousness of Christ. There's not one thing he's ever going to hold against your account as far as the east is from the west. Amen? Because of Jesus. Because Jesus paid for those sins. And again, without the advent, without the incarnation, none of that would be true. None of that would be true. Without the Son of God coming and dying for us as one of us, his life of infinite value, because he's the Son of Man, but he's also what? The Son of God. So his life of infinite value, taking the place of our life of condemning sin, Unless that would have happened, we would have never known true, real, eternal, forever forgiveness. But because he did, our future is radically transformed. Amen? So let me ask you, do you think about that when you think about that baby in a manger? Do you see the one who would live for you and then die for you? Do you see how the Christ of Christmas is much bigger than just Christmas? Much bigger than just, oh, December 25th. Yeah, we should celebrate that. A holiday season. Let's get the manger scene out. He came to accomplish our redemption by living for us and dying for us and then rising again in order to make all things new. Aren't you glad that the story doesn't end with the death of Christ? Praise God, it doesn't end with the death of Jesus. The New Testament tells us that on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. He rose conquering death, conquering sin, and defeating our old enemy. Amen? Defeating that, that serpent from the garden who had seduced the children of God into rebellion. Jesus arose. He rose in a literal human body. He arose in a glorified body, a preview of the resurrection that awaits all those who are in Christ. And he arose because the work of redemption was accomplished Paul writes in Romans 4.25, Jesus our Lord was delivered up for our trespasses, and then listen to this, and raised for our justification. And what that means is that his resurrection was the sign that it had all been paid for, right? If he was still in the grave, what would that mean? There was still sin being paid for, right? Still being paid for. But he rose for our justification. He rose as the sign that says, it's finished. It's accomplished. 
Redemption is accomplished. It's purchased for all those who are in Christ. And now all who by faith in him, trust in him, they are given the righteousness of his life. They know eternal forgiveness through his death and they can walk in the power of his resurrection. All those who put their faith in the Son of God, born of woman, are redeemed. Amen? Redeemed. And that brings me to the second thing that the New Testament shows us. I'm trying to move a little quicker here. The second thing that the New Testament shows us, this redemption accomplished is also a redemption that was proclaimed. A redemption to be proclaimed. What the Gospels describe, what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John describe, the redemption through Jesus Christ, the book of Acts then proclaims. In the chapters of Acts, what we really find is we see the world opening this gift of redemption. We see the world opening this gift of redemption. The book of Acts begins with a band of disciples there in Jerusalem. And these disciples are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what? To be witnesses. They're to go and tell the story of redemption. And these spirit-empowered witnesses, they tell the whole story. They are faithful to connect the story of Jesus to all that came before, right? They're faithful to connect it to the Old Testament. They show all those who listen to their message that this is all one big story of redemption. Now, these witnesses, they begin telling the story in Jerusalem, but the story doesn't stay confined to that place. Um, It can't. It's too amazing of a story. So the book of Acts really shows us how that story spread. It spreads beyond the gates of Jerusalem. It spreads beyond the borders of Israel. It spreads beyond the ethnic descendants of Abraham. It spreads in spite of threats and persecution. No obstacle can stand ultimately in the way of the spreading of this great story of redemption. And the book of Acts ends with the story of Jesus being proclaimed in what city? Do you remember how it ends? Where's Paul in the end of the book of Acts? Remember? In the city of Rome. Paul's come all the way to Rome. Rome, at that time, it was the heart of the ancient world. And so this story of Christ as the remedy for hearts in this fallen world makes its way all the way to the heart of this fallen world. Think about this. The story of a baby in a manger in Bethlehem is preached before kings and emperors. It is shown to be the gospel, the good news for all mankind. And as that message spreads, as the gift of redemption is opened, lives are changed. And in what fills much of the rest of the New Testament, we have letters, epistles, written to explain this new life. The apostles of Jesus Christ, men like Peter and John and Paul, write about this redemption in Christ. They help us to understand the story, and they help us to understand how the story is really our story, how it's our story. They explain to us the reality of our sin, the glory of the work of Christ, and how we are then to live as those who have been redeemed. They teach us, as Paul describes here in Galatians 4, 5, how those... How we are to live as those who have received this adoption as sons. What does it look like to live as part of God's family? What does it look like to live as his own precious child? What does it look to live like a redeemed one? What does it look like to live as a redeemed one? Well, that's what the letters of the New Testament explain to us, don't they? They explain to us what it looks like to live as a redeemed one. How to live out this redemption won for us by Jesus Christ. But that's not all that the New Testament shows us. Along with giving us... Redemption accomplished and redemption proclaimed. It also gives us the picture of redemption completed. There's coming a day when this story of redemption is going to be finished. We're not there yet, and we won't be there until Jesus comes back again. Until Jesus comes back again. But the New Testament calls us to long for that day, to long for for the second advent of Jesus. And when Jesus comes the second time, he's not going to come in lowliness and humility to suffer and die. 
He's coming how? He's coming as a king. He's coming as a king to rule and to conquer and to put the world back as it should be. And the New Testament closes with a picture of that. Take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19. I want to close out this morning by looking at redemption completed. Revelation chapter 19. And look what we read starting in verse 11. Revelation 19 verse 11. Apostle John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one, who, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Again, who's, who's writing the book of Revelation? John, same John who wrote the Gospel of John. His name is called the Word of God. Who is this? This is Jesus Christ. This is Jesus Christ. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe... And on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come and gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And the idea here is no matter who... No matter what position they are in, they, they will not be able to stand in opposition against Jesus. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was not successful. The beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped it, its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Pretty shocking scene, isn't it? It's a powerful scene. It's a scene that shows the might of Jesus as he comes as the king to rule over the earth. And he comes to make all things new. Turn over to chapter 21. Chapter 21. Look what John writes here in chapter 21, starting in verse 1. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, What glorious words these are. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I'm making all things new. 
And in chapter 22, we see a picture of the glory of this newness, this new dwelling of the people of God with God himself. And and as we look at this, as we look at chapter 22, just let me point out to you that it looks a lot like the beginning of the story. It looks a lot like the beginning. It looks like Eden restored. Turn over to chapter 22. Look at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life. We haven't seen that since when? Yeah, since Genesis chapter 3. But here it is. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Let me just stop here for a moment and say, all the stuff that's been going on in our country lately, can we use some healing? Can we use some healing? The leaves were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. All the things from Genesis 3 are coming undone. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, in this dwelling place, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. What does that speak of? That intimate, unhindered fellowship, amen, with God. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or the sun, for the Lord God will be their light. His glory is going to fill the whole place, and they will reign with him forever and ever. You see, brothers and sisters, there it is. Last chapter in the Bible, right? And everything is back to being as it should be. Everything's back to being as it should be. God's children, again, dwelling in his presence and the entire world at harmony, at harmony. That's the way the story of our redemption ends and the story of our eternity begins. And it all ends that way and our new story begins that way because of a baby in a manger. Because when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's the story. That's the Bible's big story. It's a story of God redeeming a people who were in bondage, a people who were without hope, a people who were in slavery to sin and its consequences. And brothers and sisters, it's our story. Amen. It's our story of how God rescued us, how he delivered us, and how he made us his own precious children. And at the center of that story, the fulcrum on which that story moves is that baby born in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and laid in a manger. So all that to say, brothers and sisters, please don't minimize the Christ of Christmas. Please don't minimize the Christ of Christmas. Yes, he is the reason for the season, but please don't confine the significance of what he has done simply to a season. Let the reality of who he is be the reality you live in day in and day out. Brothers and sisters, let every day be a joyful celebration that your Redeemer has come. We should sing joy to the world every Sunday. Amen? Amen. We should sing that every Sunday. Let every day be a celebration that your Redeemer has come and that by his coming, by his living for us and by his dying for us and by his rising again, he has changed a little. He's changed everything. Don't forget how the story ends. He has changed everything. We're going to close our service this morning by thanking him, by celebrating, 
how he changed everything. We're going to gather together around the Lord's table to remember the life that he lived for us and the death that he died for us. So ask the men to come forward, and would you go to the Lord with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, there is none like you. Even as those words come off my tongue, I know that's such an understatement of the reality of who you are. There's none like you. You are glorious and wonderful and amazing. And you stepped down so low. We cannot fathom what it must have been like for the, the limitless God of the universe to be in that womb to be born a baby in an animal stall and placed in a feeding trough. We can't even come close to comprehending your love for us. I pray for my brothers and sisters today as we think about the miracle of Christmas, as we think about the glory of the Advent, as we think about the awesomeness of this story of redemption, how You, Lord Jesus, change everything. I pray for my brothers and sisters that they would never, ever doubt your love for them. Your love that was made so clear in your incarnation. In every day that you walked in this world, living in the the difficulties and the trials and the temptations, and you lived faithfully for us. And you lived obedient all the way to the cross for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us to never doubt your love for us. And we thank you that today we could spend that time seeing the big picture and rejoicing in the end of the story, seeing everything as it should be, and knowing we get to enjoy that. That's our future, and it is because of you. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love you, and we thank you that we can be together this time around your table, thanking you, celebrating you, rejoicing in who you are and what you have done to save us. These things we pray in your name. Amen.